This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. Good morning, Life Church. How are we all doing? Good. Are you well? Good. Excellent. Uh, well, if I've not had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Pete. I'm part of the leadership team here. And yeah, this is part seven of seven of Nehemiah, uh, Building People. And this has been a great series, hasn't it, so far? And uh, if you've missed any of it, well, Nehemiah, he had a vision. He had this passion. He had this purpose. He had this sense of calling. He had something that he was broken uh, over. And I, and I wonder, you know, I wonder what breaks you? You know, I wonder if there's something that's so compelling that you'd be willing to move heaven and earth to do something about it. I love in the Nehemiah story that he was broken. Like he had this moment of, I need to do something about this. And with passion and with purpose and with determination and dedication, he went for it and he mobilized a community. He mobilized the people uh, to transform the world around them, to transform their community. You know, I wonder what that is for you. Now, what is something that would move you into action? Do you have a purpose? You know, do you have something that you're willing to give everything for? He accomplished something extraordinary, rebuilding the walls that have been broken and left destitute for generations. He led the people to rebuild them in an incredible 52 days. And I love that something about that has kind of caught the imagination of us as a community. What could, if Nehemiah could build rebuild a wall in 52 days and mobilize a community to do that, then what could we do in 52 weeks, which is a year, just in case we didn't get that. What could we do together as a community in 52 weeks in 2018? What could we do together with focus, with purpose, with determination? We talked about the enemy of focus being distraction. And there was this call to remove distractions so we can achieve the incredible things that God has in store for us. We talked about teamwork and playing our part. And there was this really special moment where with one voice we said yes to what God was calling us uh, to do. And we gleaned wisdom from Nehemiah in how to deal with the opposition that comes our way. Opposition is inevitable. Whichever path we take, you know, opposition is inevitable. And we gleaned wisdom from Nehemiah in how to deal with opposition. We also understood that Nehemiah has two roles. He had these two roles, to rebuild the wall and to reform the community. The job wasn't just to rebuild the wall. It was to rebuild the wall in order for this community to be reformed, a reformation of society, a reformation of community, reforming around God's word, prayer, the way of God, and worship. So that's what we're going to look at today, how this community was reformed, repurposed, refocused around worshipping their God. So the end of the book of Nehemiah is when we see worship restored to the land. And so that's what we're going to look at, Nehemiah chapter 12. The Levites, the priestly people were sought out, the musicians were gathered, and the party began. So here we go, Nehemiah 12 verse 27 is going to come up on the screen. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites, who were the priestly people, were sought out from where they had lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals. So they brought out the drummers, the harps and the lyres, or the, that's an that's a instrument, just in case we're not getting that. Uh, the musicians were also brought together. I love that. The musicians were called out. 
They were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages from whence they came. I don't think I'm going to attempt that word. (laughs) From Beth Gilgal and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth. For the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem, almost like they were waiting for this moment. They were ready for the call to come back to Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up onto the top of the wall. I love this. As we're reading this, picture this scene. I love the musical theatre of this passage. I had the leaders of Judah go up on one wall and had assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed onto the top of the wall, to the, to the right, toward the dung gate. Hashiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some of the priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah. The son, this is good, isn't it, so far? I think I'm doing well there. Uh, the son of Micahiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, and his associates, which I won't list all of them, with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. What a beautiful moment for Ezra. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people, past the tower of ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshaniah Gate, the Fish Gate, the Tower of Hanenel, the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Sheep Gate, at the Gate of the Guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God, and so did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests, and I won't list all their names. The choirs sung under the direction of Jezrohiah. And on that day, verse 43, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits and tithes from the fields around the towns. They were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the musicians and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago... In the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portion for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. I love this scene. Thank you. I love this scene, this sense of drama and musical theater, musicians and choirs, and they all come together for this celebration, for the rededication of the wall. The wall has has been rebuilt, and the musicians and the priests and, um, and the choirs have been gathered. Why? To celebrate. Worship had been restored to the land and in an incredible praise party. The community could now be reformed around worship. 
So just in case we think worship is just the singing of songs, let's just list a few words that maybe could sum up what worship is. Maybe in your own minds you have a definition. Like when we think of worship, when we think of praise, what words or images come to your mind? Words like praise, adoration. I love that word, adoration. What is it that we adore? You know, we sing that song, do we, at Christmas? Oh, come, let us adore him. What, what has our adoration? What is our greatest anthem for? Exaltation. What is it that we lift up, that we exalt? Surrender. Often worship is about surrender, bowing our knee. There's a beautiful scene Friday night uh, as, as Pays and uh, the noise here. We combine together for a, a youth and young adults event. And the night ended with this space here filled with youth and young adults kneeling before their God, surrendering to God. It was an awesome, beautiful moment of worship. Worship might mean surrender. Celebration. That's what's happening in this moment. There'd been this era of disgrace, and now we are together to celebrate that the wall has been uh, rebuilt. Worship might mean awe. Have you ever stood before a sky full of stars and thought, wow, you didn't have many words. Maybe you're not a poet, and there wasn't like a rhyme that came out, but you just looked at the sky and went, that is amazing. Wow. There's something of that in worship of awe and wonder. And thanksgiving, like we've already done that this morning as we praised God for what he's doing in our community. There was a moment of thanksgiving. And, and as we read uh, Nehemiah this morning, we saw that the, the people were gathered together to give thanks, to bring their thanksgiving. But this had been lost in this community. So the reason we have a reformation, the reason things are reformed is because at some point things were lost. This was a community built around relationship with God. Their identity, the central identity that they had, were that they were a people belonging to God. A people who worshipped God, a people who associated with the one true God. But that had been lost in this community. You know, let's go back quickly. Let's uh, take a rewind in their story. Their story starts, or the way that they understand their story starting, is in a garden where there's harmony between God and humanity. Adam and Eve and God in the garden together. And there's this harmony, there's this relationship. And then they understand as their journey moves on that God comes to meet with them. They call it the tabernacle. They're in the desert as they're wandering around, a nation without uh, a land, a nation without borders. But they are a nation that they know they belong to God. And their understanding of where God meets with them is in a tent in a tent that they called the tabernacle, which means the place of meeting. And then they built a permanent tent that they called a temple. And that was a place that they believed they could meet with God. And that was the central image of their community. This is, this is how we know who we are. We're the people that meet with God. And the land had been, um, the land had been taken over, and the people had been uh, sent into exile. And that's important for us to think, or important for us to consider, Why did they believe they were in exile? They were no longer in the land. They were no longer, they no longer had the temple. They could no longer be the people of God in their own minds. Why? Because they were not in the land. They did not have the temple. They were not able to worship God in the way that they believed they should be able to worship God. They were in exile. Now we can look back and say, well, there's lots of different reasons why they were in exile. 
They were in exile because somebody took over their land and kicked them out. (laughs) That's why. But their understanding of why they were in exile was because they realized we had been worshiping things other than God. We'd been putting other things, this worship, this adoration, this exaltation, this surrender, this celebration, we'd been giving it to the wrong thing. In the Bible, there's a strong word that the Bible uses for this. In the Bible, they call that idolatry. We call that idolatry. Let me read you this quote. Some of this quote's going to be on the screen. This is a great quote that maybe helps us understand something of what's going on with idolatry. Idolatry could simply mean giving things the glory that's due to God that isn't worth it. It's not worth the glory given to God. Or giving the glory that we should be given to God, things that are created, images, or things that aren't God that we give worship to. Here's a better definition from Tom Wright. The diagnosis of the human plight is then not simply that humans have broken God's moral law, offering and in, offending and insulting the creator whose image they bear, though that is true as well. This law-breaking is a symptom of a much more serious disease. Morality is important, but it isn't the whole story. Called to responsibility and authority within and over creation, humans have turned their vocation upside down, giving worship and allegiance to other forces and powers within creation itself. The name for this is idolatry. The result is slavery and finally death. It isn't just that humans do wrong things and so incur punishment. This is one element of the larger problem, which isn't so much a punishment that might seem arbitrary, perhaps even draconian. It is rather about direct consequences. When we worship and serve forces within creation, we hand over power to other forces, only too happy to usurp our position. We humans have thus handed our power and authority to non-divine and non-human forces, which have then run rampant, spoiling human lives, ravaging the beautiful creation, and doing their best to turn God's world into a hell, and hence into a place from which people might want to escape. Nehemiah wasn't just rebuilding a wall. He was trying to reform society. He was trying to rebuild a community around the way of God. Prayer, study of scripture, worship, that we could once again be a people that had harmony with God like in the garden and that could meet with God like in the tabernacle and could exalt the name of our God like in the temple, that we could be a people once again who worshipped our God. I love what Tom Wright says here about the human vocation. Humans have turned their vocation upside down. Vocation means a job, a role. Everyone in this room either has a job or has had a job at some point in our lives. There's been labels that you've worn, tasks that you've been given, jobs that you've done, that you've been paid for. But bigger than that and beyond all of that, we have a vocation. We have a role in life. We have stuff to do. That's maybe a less eloquent way of saying it. But that's what I believe, that we have stuff to do. God has a role for us. And part of our role is worship. Actually, we are designed and created with worship in our heart. As humans, we always lean towards things that we adore, that we exalt, that we lift up, that we celebrate, that we give thanks for, that we stand in awe and wonder in. 
and idolatries giving worship to anything other than the one true God. So let me ask you this question. What are you giving your adoration to? Who is your greatest anthem for? As you lift up the song of adoration and the song of thanksgiving in your life, who is your greatest anthem for? So the people of Israel realize in this story, we have been given our best. We've been given our worship to the wrong things. And now we've rebuilt the wall. We can now rededicate ourselves. We can now be recommissioned and reformed around being a people of praise. Before we get into this, I've got five things I want to say to you this morning about what it means to be a person of praise. My invitation this morning is that as a community, as an individual, as a family, that we can be the people of praise. Are you up for that? Are we here? Great. Before we get into that, just one little thought on exile. Exile is being far away from home. Exile is being far away from where you're meant to be. And you might be here this morning feeling far away from where you're meant to be, far away from God's best for your life or God's will for your life. Here's what I love about exile. And here's what I love about the gospel story is you can come home. You, you can come home. In this story, the people of God, they come home and they rebuild the walls and they reform society. This morning, whoever you are, however far away from God you feel, however rejected you might think you are by heaven, you're not. The exiles can come home. You can come home to the Father this morning. Okay, here we go. Five things I want to say on being the people of praise. Number one, being the people of praise means we can be a people of celebration. We can be a people of celebration. The first thing this community does as they re-enter the land, as they rebuild the walls, what is the first thing they do? They worship. They lift up a song of thanksgiving, a song of praise. What do we do every Sunday morning? We come to this place, we gather as a community, you have a cup of coffee, you say hello to a few people. But then the first thing we do as a community each Sunday is to lift our arms and to lift a song of praise. Why? Because we are a people of celebration. Time and time again in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is conscious of the fact that it's not just rebuilding a wall, but the people are in disgrace. He's conscious that the people of Israel, the people who are meant to belong to God, they have this sense of disgrace. It's not just that they're living somewhere they're not meant to live in exile. It's not just that the walls have been broken down. It's that the picture that it's painting of their lives is we are in disgrace. Can I tell you good news this morning? The season of disgrace is over. There is freedom for you in Jesus' name. We can be a people of celebration. I want to share a scripture that um, when, I, when I first became a Christian, when I first became a follower of Jesus, this was a scripture that was huge in my life. I had this real sense of um, rejection and feeling like an outsider, feeling like I was always on the outside looking in. In every aspect of life, including my relationship with God, that other people seemed to be on the inside, but I was on the outside looking in. And then when I had this moment of uh, experiencing the presence of God and knowing God for myself, this was a scripture that really spoke to me. This is 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. And I believe this for you as well. It says this, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness 
into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the people of praise are a people of celebration. Why? Because the season of disgrace is over and we can be reformed around worship. We can be reformed around praise. We can be people of freedom. I want to encourage you, whether or not you can sing or whether or not you can play a musical instrument, I want to encourage you to be a worship leader. This morning, as I looked around uh, our, our congregation, as we were singing together, I, I, I saw a room full of worship leaders. You know, I saw a room full of people who were saying, I'm not waiting for the song that I like. <laughs> no, I'm not waiting for a tune that I can get into. Actually, I'm going to say, I am going to worship God. I'm going to lead myself in worshiping God. Can I encourage you to be a person of celebration? Whether or not you know the song, whether or not it's a song that you like, like, how does that factor? You know, let's be worship leaders. Let's be people that say, I am going to dedicate myself. This scene in Nehemiah was a dedication, a rededication. Can I encourage you this morning to be a people that say, I'm going to lead myself in worship. I'm going to dedicate myself to be a person of celebration. Nehemiah 10, 39 says this. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, olive oil to the storehouses, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. Why? Here's what they're saying. We will not neglect the house of our God. I love this sense of dedication. I love this sense of saying, this is who we are. As this community is reformed around worship, this is who we are and this is who we're going to be. A people of celebration. I will lead myself. I will dedicate myself in worship and in praise. Secondly, as we reformed around worship, as we can be a community reformed around worship, it means we can be a people of intimacy. A people that know God. One of my favorite prayers at the moment, I'm, I just find myself praying. I don't know if you have that in your life, that you kind of have seasons of. This prayer just seems to be really working at the moment. The prayer that I'm, I'm constantly praying over people is that they would know God's closeness and that they would know God's kindness. That you would know God's closeness. That you would know that God is close. He's not far away. He's not disappointed. He's not forgetful. He's not abandoned you. That God is close. And this is the story throughout scripture. In the tabernacle, that God came to meet with humanity. In the person of Jesus, the incarnation, the Christmas story, God is close. Actually, God is with us. And this is something that happens in worship. As worship is reformed, there's a sense of coming face to face with the presence of God. There's a, there's a Greek word uh, for worship, uh, and the word is prosecuno. And it means this, to bow down or to come close towards to kiss. So there's a sense of surrender. I'm surrendering myself to God. But also the sense of I'm coming close in intimacy. I'm coming close to kiss. Or even better, that I see God, as I kneel before God, that he receives me. That he, it's not just that we're bowing before a dictator, a tyrant God. Actually, as we come close to God, what we receive is his, his, his kindness and his affection, and his love. That we would know God as well as knowing God. 
Uh, here's just a quick story to explain what I mean by knowing and knowing. Uh, just uh, maybe last week, I think it was, we were having breakfast at our breakfast table, uh, me and my daughters. And uh, I asked a question that you probably ask most days as well uh, of yourself. I asked I ask myself lots of, I have an internal monologue the whole time. I'm always kind of thinking through big questions of life. Um, and so I was thinking through like the origin of the universe. And so I said to my daughters, do your school ever talk to you about the origin of the universe? Now, my kids are six and nine. Okay, that's a bizarre question, isn't it? I understand that. And even as I was asking the question, I thought, what am I asking my children? Does your school ever teach you about that? And I use that phrase. Does your school ever tell you about the origin of the universe? And then I thought, what am I asking? And what I was asking was, I was just thinking through, not just what people believe, but the thing behind the thing, like the story behind, or the, the narrative, the why behind the what. So I was just interested. They go to a Christian school. I know what their head teacher believes about the origin of the universe. Um, I, was just, I was just intrigued. And they looked at me and said, uh, no, <laughs> surprisingly. Uh, and then I said, okay, what, what do you believe? Like, what, where do you, what do you where do you think it all comes from? What do you believe? And my youngest, either this is just brilliant theology or she's just doing the Sunday school answer. She said, Jesus. And I'm like, yes, that's brilliant. Because John's gospel, that's what it says. John's gospel says that G- through him, all things were made. I was like, that's brilliant, Jasmine. And then that conversation led to another conversation from my oldest daughter of, well, if Jesus made the universe, if Jesus is God, then why do we call them different names? Like, why does God have different names? How is God different people? So she's asking questions about Trinity or about the nature of God or about how we express God. And, and so that led to a conversation about how in different countries and different cultures and different eras, people have named God differently. People have had different experiences or expressions of God, uh, not expressions of God, but different experiences of God. And so they name God in different ways, but it's God. So I'm trying to help Bella see this is God. God is behind the whole thing. Uh, then I thought, I need, I need to have some kind of illustration here of how can we know God? How can we really experience who God is? And they were eating porridge at this moment. So I said to them both, how do you know porridge is tasty? And, and I said, then I answered the question. <laughs> I said, you know porridge is tasty. You could read it in a book. There are books out there that could tell you porridge is tasty. Um, and you could ask other people who've eaten porridge, like who's eaten porridge in this room? Is it tasty? Yeah. So you can ask other people. You can read it in a book. But you guys know porridge is tasty. Why? Because it is in your mouth. <laughs> That's what I said to them. This is weird. This is a weird moment, isn't it, in my life? I'm like, you guys know porridge is tasty. Why? Because it is in your mouth. Now, some people know about God. Some people can read about God in a book. Some people can ask other people about their experience with God. But I'm trying to say to my children, you can know God. You can know the closeness of God. You can know intimacy with God. Like you can taste him. Like he's in your mouth. And I reminded them actually this morning as we took communion, as they're sipping the juice. I'm like, you can actually experience. So I'm not saying God tastes like Ribena. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we can have this closeness and this intimacy with God. Can I invite you this morning? You can know God, but you can also know God. Like we can know God in our heads and know him in a book, but you can know God in a deeper and more intimate way. Quickly, number three, a people of transformation. What I love in this story that we read in Nehemiah is that all the locations mentioned in the whole book of Nehemiah, where the wall's been rebuilt, we now see these places filled with praise. 
all the dung gate and the sheep gate and all these places that we've read throughout the book of Nehemiah, they're now transformed. They're now filled with the praise and the noise of worship. What did I read before? That the, the sound of praise could be heard all over Jerusalem. Worship transforms the world around us. And actually in scripture, there's this link between worship and justice. Why? Because as we come close to God, we're reminded of who we are and we're reminded of his activity. Amos says it like this, let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Can I encourage you this morning that worship isn't just about me and you, Jesus. That actually as I come close to God, he reminds us of who we are and what we're trying to do. So worship can propel us to be a people of transformation, that the atmosphere around us can change. Number four, a people who honor God. Again, I love in this story that as they were led in worship, it reminded them about their finances. It reminded them about their resources. It reminded them to be a people of generosity and a people of giving. It reminded them to purify themselves. A people who honor God. A people of praise are a people who honor God. We honor God with our resources. Why? Because giving is living. We honor God uh, with our hearts, with what's in our hands. A clean heart and pure hands. We, we are people who honor God. And lastly, and this is where you're going to get to join in. This is not just a monologue. This is an invitation. Number five, we get to be a people of praise. Again, here's what I love in this story in Nehemiah. The locations mentioned throughout the book of Nehemiah are now transformed with worship and praise. Now the people... We've read before that these people rebuilt the walls and these people got involved in the task of rebuilding. Now, these people join the choir. Now, these people pick up a tambourine. Now, these people pick up a drumstick, you know. Now, these people have a keyboard and the whole shebang. Now, these people get to join in and become the people of praise. It's the same people. The same people who rebuilt the walls and now the leaders of the choir are leading the procession are stood on the walls, are bringing their songs of thanksgiving. They're bringing their songs of celebration. They become a people of praise. So how about us? What an incredible community of people. You know, a people that know God's closeness and know God's kindness. In worship, we come face to face with God. A people of celebration. A people of transformation that our songs of worship begin to change the atmosphere around us, a people who honor God. And come on, Life Church, how about we step into being a people of praise? Discover more about us at lifelanks.org and stay inspired by subscribing to the podcast via iTunes. Thanks for listening.